This is To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, a Learn and Sing production. I'm Paul McDermott, and this is a podcast about great Irish albums. It's named after a My Bloody Valentine song. If you go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find links to episode notes and lots of further information on all of the albums we've covered so far. So if you're new to the podcast, that's albums by Jubilee All-Stars, The Shanks, Nina Hines, Therapy, That Petrol Emotion, The Fatima Mansions, Whipping Boy, Into Paradise, Jet Plane Landing and many, many more. And I'd ask that if you've enjoyed any episode to date, then please consider subscribing, liking and sharing. Now the last episode, episode 28, featured Jubilee All-Stars and their great album Lights of the City. And there are links between Jubilee All-Stars and Boer Morte, the focus of this episode. Boer Morte were inspired to work with the recording engineer Mark Carolyn because of his work on the first Jubilee All-Stars recordings, and Boa Morte also played with the Jubilee All-Stars on a number of occasions. Boa Morte hail from Cork. Paul Ruxton, Cormac Gahan and Bill Toomey play guitars. Paul and Cormac sing, and Morris Hallisey plays drums. They've been together since the late 90s, and to date have released four incredible albums. Their most recent, and without doubt their most adventurous sonically to date, is titled The Total Space. Before Boer Morte, they were in a band called Hubble, and before that again a few of the lads were in a band called The Lemmings. I've known the lads a long time, and I'm also unashamedly a long-time fan. In preparing for this episode, I went back through my own archive, When I say archive, please imagine a few boxes of cuttings, flyers, posters and ticket stubs in my attic. But you know, one person's attic clutter is another's archive of social and cultural history. Anyway, I digress. So I located an old gig flyer. The gig was on Thursday, the 28th of May, 1998, in the Triscoll Arts Centre in Cork, almost exactly 25 years ago. Across the top it says science fiction or science fact. There's a cool picture of a satellite dish. It states a late gig, two bands and a DJ. All of this was for a measly £3 with the flyer or £4 without. The bands were Philip K. Dick and Hubble. Philip K. Dick are labelled as excursions into the unknown and Hubble are labelled new country. Incidentally, Philip K. Dick was Brian O'Shaughnessy's band, the person who designed the flyer and a number of Boer Morte album covers, and this podcast's logo. Looking back now, it's interesting that Hubble were described as new country. They were making that transition from what I suppose we'd call an indie band into something mellower, slower, something influenced more by Americana and folk music. It was a really interesting time. Indie guitar bands were experimenting and new subgenres were emerging, sadcore or slowcore and post-rock. Bands such as Low and Tortoise were making really exciting records. 
Around this time, indie noise heroes Mercury Rev even turned from the neo-psychedelic sounds of See You on the Other Side and ventured up to the Catskills Mountains, enlisting Garth Hudson and Levon Hellam of the band to join their recording sessions. Deserter songs followed in September 1998, a landmark album, if ever there was one. Within months of that May 1988 Triskel gig, Hubble had changed their name to Bohr Morte, and as mentioned earlier, made contact with the recording engineer Mark Carlin and recorded their debut EP, Passenger Measure Your Time. It too was released in September of 1998, and on its release, Morte described it as sparse, lo-fi and country-ish. And indeed it was. It was the start of the Morte adventure, and long may it continue. Oh, and the DJ on that night in May 1988 was yours truly, the Flyer States plus DJ Paul McDee, playing Stereolab, Mogwai, Arbstrap and The Fall. Douchapol, always a man of great taste. So I said earlier, Bormorte's latest album is called The Total Space. And if you're listening to this episode in 2023, the band are playing a gig upstairs in Whelan's on Thursday the 11th of May. I haven't seen them play live in a long time and I'm really looking forward to it. Now in this episode, we do talk about the latest album and the sonic progression the band has made over the last couple of years. But our main focus is Bormorte's gorgeous debut album from 2002. An album of which Uncut magazine wrote, occasionally a record comes along that's so intimate and immediate you want to disconnect the phone, get under the duvet and forget the world outside. Now, if that doesn't make you want to hear the album, I don't know what will. Uncut were just spot on. It really is that beautiful. So here we go to Here Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, episode 29. Soon it will come time to face the world outside by Boer Morte. It's my great pleasure to welcome Paul Ruxton, Cormac Gahan and Bill Toomey. Lovely to have you with me. I'm thrilled you're here, Paul, because um, I was thinking that most of the interviews are always done by Bill and Cormac. There's this impression, or I'd call it a misconception, actually. Journalists go along with this misconception that just because the band are quiet, you know, all those cliches like sad core or melancholic music or whatever. And Bill and Cormac have never done anything to kind of dispel the misconception that you're a bunch of miserable bastards. (laughs) I'm really glad, Paul, that you're here now to finally get rid of this misapprehension that Bore Marte are a bunch of miserable bastards. (laughs) Paul's the most miserable one of the lot of us, so you're, you're due to be disappointed. That's your job now, Paul. <laughs> I'll try. I'll try. Uh, I'll try and um, upset the misconception, as you put it, uh, Paul. Absolutely. I'll do my best. We haven't spoken in years, Paul, I'd say. I remember you being stunned one night in a pub in Dublin when I admitted to only owning two Neil Young albums. <laughs> you got very upset with me. <laughs> yeah, I've calmed down a bit since then. Uh, I suppose as you get older, you tend to get less uh, less bothered about about such important matters. So Absolutely. I wanted to start by saying 
when I go back over interviews or features about Boa Morte, the thing that really annoys me always, and I'd like to get your take on it, is this narrative of they've only put out four albums in 20 years, you know, but it's been worth the wait. And every single article about Boa Morte, I want to completely turn that on its head, OK? I kind of go, well, actually, how in the name of God did Boa Morte manage to find the time to put four albums out when you consider that you all have full-time jobs, you all have careers, some of you are running businesses, some of you went up a career ladder over the last two decades, family life, mortgages, raising kids. How in the name of God, lads, did you find the time to actually put out four albums? Yeah, that's it. that's exactly it. I mean, you know, I mean, if you're a professional musician, you're working, you come into work and you write songs. You know, Nick Cave is on record. He's He has an office with a piano and he goes in, he does eight hours a day at least. And, you know, if you if you can't do that, if you're doing other things, then obviously, you know, things are it's going to take a lot longer. <laughs> and if, especially if you have um, an eye on quality as well, which we always had, I, I think, you know, that, you know, you're just not going to release any old songs on the album that, you know, you, um, you just you just keep an eye on the, the quality of the material, you know, and that's that's going to take time. So I, I totally agree with you. You know, I'm, I'm proud of the th- of the four albums that we've done. Is it a narrative that annoys you, Bill? A, l- a little bit, I guess. But in, in some ways, there's some there's some uh, there's something to be said for it as well. Like the you know the first album was 2002, the second one was was it 2010, and there thereabouts, and then the next one after that was 2019. So there was 20, nearly 20 years when there was only two albums. But I guess those 20 years that I guess when we released the first album, we were kind of in our late 20s. You know, we had been in a number of rock, pop, guitar-based bands through the, through the 90s in Cork. And when we started Bo Morte, it's around that time that, you know, we all had careers that were starting to maybe um, go places. And we had um, children that came along around that time as well when we were in our late 20s, early 30s. And that, you know, kids take up a lot of time, you know. And uh, it was the next 15 to 20 years, it's kind of... A lot of time was dedicated towards that, I guess. And it's it, but I would say in the last four to five years, you know, we've spent as much time on music as we ever had almost in the 90s. You know, we sit up every week. We've written more songs in the last five years, uh, way more songs in the last five than we had in the previous 15. You know, so, um, you know, I think there, I, I think there's some credence there, but I think time is freeing up now a little bit and uh, we're starting to roll a little bit more freely than we had. You know, it's not a narrative that you read about in other art forms, though. Like you don't see authors being asked, why have you only written X number of novels? You know, it's weird, isn't it? There's, it is a bit because I think there's a there's a, you know, the, the people who put out an album, they want to follow it up very quickly, you know, with another album and, and build on that, build on that momentum, you know. Yeah. And so it is part of the it's just part of the industry and the way the industry works. We just couldn't do that. I think it was interesting what Bill said that, you know, we were kind of in our late 20s when the first album came out. And actually, if you think about a lot of bands, they're in their early 20s and you've just, you you you're, you know, they probably weren't, people aren't thinking about careers and children at that point, you know. So you've, you've yeah. so they, those bands will sort of roll with it for the next six years, be very productive. Whereas we're, we're coming to, to it slightly yeah. later. But it also meant that by the time that first record came out it meant that 
even if offers had been there, let's say, for a six-week tour of the States, sleeping on floors, I mean, you'd have been in no position to kind of get six weeks off work, obviously. Like, that would never have come about, sure it wouldn't. No, and, and we, when, the only time we really went on tour, per se, I suppose, was, you know, when we went to the UK and we did, I think, eight or nine gigs uh, over 10 or 11 days. And there's some years that we haven't done eight or nine gigs in total. So even something like that was a, yeah. was a big um, yeah. A big adventure for us, a big, you know, a big commitment. There was, probably was a, a very brief period of time when we got signed for the first time yeah. to Mood Food in the States where we were saying, you know, Jesus, you know, should we should we look at doing something differently? Should we, you know, we never had a manager, you know, should we, <laughs> should we maybe get a manager? Should we take a, a break for a couple of years and just go yeah. after this in a really meaningful way, you know, and give it everything? But it was right or wrong, we decided yeah. to take a more cautious path stick with our jobs and work the record deal and the recording of the of the first album through that. And, it, you know, it makes things yeah. probably not ideal. It, may, it certainly makes things slower. Looking back, I think, you know, it's probably the right thing to do, you know. Yeah. It was probably the, not, not the rock and roll thing to do, but certainly, you know, don't have any regrets looking back at it. Yeah, absolutely. I have an old clip here I'm going to play. It's about three minutes long. It's you, Cormac, talking to me around the time of the um, the second album. Would yourself and all of the lads, you'd have been into more kind of, I suppose, what we'd categorise as kind of indie music, yeah, kind of yeah. back in the early back 90s in the and that. Yes, so that's right. Was there a record or was there was there a gig you saw? Was there something happened that you went, hey, you know, this type of sound is something I really like? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really interesting one. I, I mean, we were listening to all that stuff, you know, Nirvana and... Uh, yeah. Pavement, and you know, we we even tried playing in that style, you know, and we played, you know, and then I suppose we uh, personally, I started listening to things like the Triffids, and um, okay. um, who else? I suppose the early Palace Brothers stuff when they started recording, you know, um, and you know, we've always, been, I've always been a big fan of Leonard Cohen, for instance, yeah. and Paul in the band has isn't is a Neil Young freak, freak, not <laughs> he's got everything. <laughs> You know, I think he's saving up for that box set, you know, oh, at the moment, yeah. the DVD, the archives, set, yeah. the archives <laughs> and trying to work his way through that. But um, so I suppose there are all those influences floating around, you know, yeah. so American like it wasn't music. So it was hard to get people well. to slow down. It no, it wasn't. No. The rest of the band to slow down. no, it wasn't. I suppose we all started listening to that sort of thing at the same time. In American know. Music Club. You were American Music say, Club, uh, California, yeah. you know, that album. When that came out, um, just thought it was great. You know that you could do that without you know you could do that play that type of music yeah. you know no distortion sounds on your guitar and harking back to the folk stuff of Nick Drake and, and that sort of era yeah we just we just all started playing in that in that way I suppose playing Neil Young type chords clean yeah you know clean on the electric guitar were you tired of the kind of indie band type of thing not really I don't know I suppose we were still listening to Pavement and, yeah. and things like that at the, at the time you know really into that into that type of music and we still would be you know yeah. um, I suppose it's just the direction we, we, we went in you know Okay. So I found it suited us it suited Paul especially I think as you know one of the main songwriters you know he, he was so into the into Neil Young and that that, that, that type of, of stuff that um, you know came very easily to him I think the, the writing songs in that style you know so that's Paul Ruxton, Paul who's Ruxton, the yeah. um, the other lead vocalist. Yeah, I suppose the next obvious question: Do you write the songs you sing, and does Paul write the songs he sings? Yeah, we do. We do. Yeah, okay. yeah. So that's it's like the, the classic exactly, Forrester yeah. and McLennan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's that's the way it works at the moment. And do the songs say. come fully formed into the band room, or they have done it? Uh, yeah, they have done really. They have done, and then we put the the, the spin on it. You know, yeah. the the drums sort of can really change the the, the sound of the song, yeah. for instance, and then Bill Bill adds his parts as well, right. and that can really change the the the, the stuff that we do. We we do a lot of arra- arranging then okay. of the songs. I think we can leave it there, actually, can't we? <laughs> done. It's, it. all there. it's all there now. Save yourself a lot, a lot of time and effort. But. Sorry, Cormac, for that kind of putting you on the spot there. It's horrible listening back to something you did you did years ago. But there's a lot to unpack there. It's a good starting point again, really. I went back. I even listened to some of the older stuff, you know, some of the, um, the Lemming stuff, that first indie band from... God, uh, mid nineties, Bill. I suppose would it have been or early to mid nineties? Early nineties, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even further back. Yeah. There was a version of Burn that the Lemmings did that ends up on the Boamorte album years later, unrecognizable, really. But one of the things I wanted to ask there, Paul, like Cormac's kind of talking for you in that clip. Obviously, you you weren't there that day. Was there something for you, Paul, during the nineties? Cormac says it's it's your love of Neil Young, but I mean, what was it for you that uh, wanted you to slow things down a bit? That's a very good question. It's hard to it's hard to remember, uh, you know, a specific or uh, you know uh, that it was it was it was something that we did with that there was method to it or mm-hmm. or a lot of thought put into it. As Cormac mentioned in that interview, Palace Brothers had a big bearing on on our direction in terms of the pace of the music and was a a good reference point for us, as well as all the older uh, folk, um, stroke country type acts that we we would have been fans of, you know. So I suppose, as Cork mentioned in that interview, like there's, we started very much in the vein uh, of a band that were playing the very much the pavements type, as you know, as a reference point. I'm trying to think of other reference points there but we would have been into Sonic Youth My Bloody Valentine all that kind all that raft of, of bands that are still that still stand up there today and I still would listen to you know so that's so I suppose in terms of where we started with the first record I suppose you know Palace the Palace reference point is a good is something that we might have latched on yeah does that ring a bell yeah I, I can remember yeah we in that period, you know, we started with a band called Lemmings that me and Clark were in, and then it became a band called Hubble that were doing all this kind of pavement Sonic Youth uh, Dinosaur Junior style, just noisy guitar stuff. And you know, we played we played all around the Cork circuit, and there was lots of lots of gigs in Cork at the time, lots of places to play. Um, we supported Franks, we did various bits and pieces, but I think we brought it to a point where we just knew ourselves we weren't going to get any further with it. And we just wanted to change things up a bit. And I, yeah. I think it was Cormac who pushed it more than anybody else saying, look, we need to just have a look at ourselves and say, you know, just just for interest as much as anything else. And just to kind of break the pattern, just try something a little bit different. And we were all, as Paul said, you know, massive fans of that first Palace Brothers album. Yeah. I remember Ohio Boat River song being played on No Disco yeah. and that being a real, a real moment because I... I would have had no reference point really for kind of mm. Americana. So therefore, when I heard Ohio Boat River song, you know, that was something completely new for me, you know. I still remember that very well, the video for that with Black and White. Yeah. That was a big, that was a big 
point in time for us, I think, yeah. collectively, and the and the first Absolutely. record. And Morris saw them. I didn't go to that gig, but in the shelter, in the shelter, in the shelter. Yeah, that was a big, that was a big um, uh, reference point. And then you know, albums by Smog, you know, Red Apple Falls, produced by Jim O'Rourke, and um, a lot of the Jim O'Rourke stuff was was coming out at that time, uh, late nineties. You know, there was real, you know, yeah, big, big musical movement from the states. Um, from in Chicago, Louisville, and Louisville, Kentucky, and so on. Some really exciting stuff, you know, the drag city and and all that stuff. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. even like other bands that we had been huge fans of, like Teenage Fan Club, had started to kind of, you know, go in that direction yeah. a, a bit as well. So it's kind of like an organic, yeah, Tinder sticks. Yeah, Tinder sticks. Yola Tango played in Dublin last night. You know. I went up to Dublin in a car. Bill, you you drove up to a gig. I think Cormac, you were in the car as well. I think we were going to see Mercury Rev in the Mean Fiddler. But what I do remember, Bill, is inside in it was the Virgin Megastore at the time, Ashton Key. It was still there on the key. Mm. I think the three of us bought Yola Tango's I Can Hear the Heart Beating as well. Does that ring a bell? It would have been about 98. Okay. One of ye were like, oh, you have to buy this. Or, you know, you'd heard one or two songs off it. Now that you mention it, it's kind of it's kind of stirring up in my brain a little bit. Yeah, but yeah, that's funny. I was just listening to that Yola Tango album last week. It still holds up after all these years. It's amazing. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, Rev, um, that we went to see. Would it have been just before Deserter Songs, maybe? I think so, yeah, because they actually played Deserter Songs in Henry's, if you remember, I think the year after. Yeah. Yeah. Just to go back to this thing, so kind of about slowing down, what I've always wondered, Paul and Cormac, okay, when you decided to slow things down a bit, were you a lot more self-conscious about the quality of the lyrics? Because suddenly the lyrics can be heard a lot more. I suppose I'd give you my tuppence worth first on that. Um, So I suppose, first of all, one of the huge benefits of slowing down was as somebody at the time, I wouldn't have considered myself as a good musician and some might have argued that I'm still not a good musician but one of the benefits of slowing it down was it was a hell of a lot easier to play so that's the first okay the other point you mentioned there as in terms of you there's no doubt about it you're because you're playing quiet music with a lot of breaks a lot of gaps and there's much more focus on the singer and if you're not particularly comfortable <laughs> uh as being the center point I suppose you know um, it's not a, an easy place to be, I suppose, but it's something you get used to over time. Um, I suppose, like Cormac mentioned, like somebody like Bill Callahan, you know, earlier there, you know, he's like the consummate storyteller. You know, if you're not yeah. a storyteller, uh, when it comes to lyrics, you resort to, um, you know, hiding uh, hiding things and metaphors. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very much very much left to the listener to decipher what you're actually singing about uh, yeah so that doesn't help either does yeah. that answer your question oh yeah 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 sorry cormac go yeah suddenly everything's very exposed you know i mean yeah it's it's actually a very difficult thing to do because for, for a start everything has to be completely in tune you know the little harmonic differences in tuning can mean a lot you know when everything's exposed like that you've got no distortion on the guitars you've got nothing to hide that and then, of course, the lyrics are very exposed. I think there was a sense for some of our early gigs that everything could sort of collapse at any moment in time, you know, that things could yeah. suddenly fall apart. You know? <laughs> and there were some gigs where, where they did. <laughs> you know? so, uh, 
So it's actually more difficult to do than it sounds, you know, because you're not getting up and just thrashing through a guitar riff. You know, it's yeah. it's it's um, it's quite uh, nuanced, if you like, um, in a way. Yeah. You talked about things sometimes almost falling apart on stage. When I think of the Jubilee All-Stars, that's what I think about quite often, this idea of they could be quite shambolic on stage, you know. I found something, Cormac, you wrote for that website, We Are Noise, there. This has gone back easily 10 years ago, Cormac. You were asked to pick out a favourite album, not a favourite album, but just an Irish album that you really like. And you picked out... um. The Last Post's mm. Dry Land record. I love that album as well. Um, Alan Kelly was in um, In Motion, of course, in the mid-90s. And you start talking about Mark Carolyn. Mark Carolyn worked with Alan Kelly on that Last Post project. But then you say that Mark came to your attention through those Jubilee All-Star EPs in the mid-90s. You talk about the fact that you liked the sound of those EPs and it made you search out Mark Carlin when you wanted to record Bore Morte's first EP. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's that's exactly how it happened. I mean, just, I suppose the Jubilee All-Stars were really, at the time, probably the only people doing the same sort of thing as us. Um, I suppose Stars of Heaven had been earlier than us. The, Ireland didn't have a whole lot of um, really pro-quality recording studios that you could rely on and that were cheap <laughs> uh, because you either went to Window Lane and it was high end or you found a demo studio which probably wouldn't wouldn't cut it for us you know uh, so so that's exactly what we did and is that because when you quieten things down a simple demo studio down the country or in Cork or whatever isn't going to sound great that's really what you're getting at there Cormac I assume is it the concept of lo-fi was a bit of a myth in some ways that you know if you listen to the smog albums, they're just pristinely recorded. The drums are just so clear. It's almost like a jazz recording. The drums are so clear. That takes a lot of knowledge and effort and equipment. <laughs> Irish studios at the time, well, you know, it was difficult to find a studio that would do that, that would deliver on that, you know. And, and since Mark Carolyn had already done it with Jubilee All-Stars, that seemed to be the way to go for us. Yeah, yeah, Mark was great to work with because, you know, he insisted on perfect pitch and perfect tuning. Um, on, on being well prepared, I think we we recorded our first EP just in a day or so. But it was a yeah. it, it was a first insight for us into you know what a real kind of professional level recording process looks like. Um, so it was good. Just on that, the only thing I can remember from those sessions was Mark playing violin on Born, yeah. and he kind of really blew yeah. me away with his musicianship on that. And I can remember just that's as I say, my memory isn't yeah. great, uh, but. Yeah, I think he, we went away for coffee or something. When we came back, he'd done about you know seven or eight layers of violin, yeah. <laughs> and it sounded great. And th yeah. That version, I think, sounds better than the version that, came, that was on the album. In some yeah. ways, arguably, yeah. arguably, yeah. Yeah. isn't it mad to think that he's like Muse's front of house sound engineer now? It's just, <laughs> it's just well, insane, isn't it? Unbelievable. When you see the photographs of him standing in front of you know eighty thousand yeah. people, you know, and you know. It must be a high-pressure job. Yeah, there's some great videos on YouTube as well of Mark walking through his rig, you know, in front of this massive stage, getting ready to play for 50,000 people. It's, it's, it's insane. We did an episode of the podcast on Wormhole. That was the first thing he ever recorded, you see. So he was like, I'll come on and talk about it. Like, you know, it was great. We kind of stayed in touch with him as well because the third album in 2019, we recorded that in Herbert Lane. Or it was yeah. called at the time, yeah. which Mark kind of co-owned. And then the last album is in Black Mountain up in up 
above Dundalk, which Mark also co-owns. He, he called into that session, actually. Yeah, so yeah, we, yeah. Met him, we met him just two years ago, a year yeah. and a half ago, yeah. uh, for the first time in years. <laughs> so still the same. That's gas, yeah. So after this EP, ye, uh, you know, there was the whole, you know, the record deal. Actually, what I am interested in is... Um, Daniel Presley, I know that band Spain as well. You make contact with Daniel Presley and he comes over. Didn't he come to Cork and watch you rehearse? Uh, that's right, yeah. And actually the Mood Food, the label we were signed to, put us in contact with Daniel. Oh, was that it? Okay. That's it, yeah. Because I think he had done work for them previously. So he came over and yeah, he spent a week with us in a, up in Blarney in Morris's, Morris's parents' place. It's a farm. And our our... our practice room was literally a loft above a milking parlor um so we spent a week in a above a milking parlor with daniel he, he's a great guy musically he's just super sharp but he's just uh, one of the funniest people you're, you're ever likely to meet as well so it was it was no it was no trial spending time with him but he was he was insanely demanding you know he just in, insisted on professional levels of um preparation um he restructured quite a few of the songs actually and he really really you know he made us work hard for probably the best part of two weeks to get us ready to go into studio yeah and actually Cormac, scoping a studio in west cork yeah that's yeah. right yeah yeah he went on a tour of the country with cormac as well looking for an, an appropriate recording uh, venue so we went down we were going to record in west cork in a studio but um i think they they were just they panicked when they heard that this guy was coming over from uh, from Los Angeles or somewhere. <laughs> he went in and he ran his finger across the heads of the of the tape machine, and his finger came came out black. You know, it was covered in <laughs> it was covered in dirt. And he said, "Let's get out of here fast." You know, <laughs> but um, I think we were being demanding as well because we wanted to record on analog uh, equipment, and of course, people had moved to digital even at that stage. So nobody was was digging out these old tape machines. So they 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 dug it out of a corner, and uh, but he said no, it's not good. This isn't gonna gonna cut it. So that that meant he had to come back a couple mm. of months later to record us in Dublin. Cormac, go back there a sec. Was there friction in the band room when he was suggesting changing arrangements and things like that? How did you take an outsider coming in? suddenly telling you to switch it up? Well, I think we, we listened to him because I think, we, I mean, we were quite musically naive at the time. So and I think a lot of the suggestions were good. <laughs> so so it didn't, we've never had much friction in, in that sense. In no, I, I, I suppose I, can, I can't remember a huge amount about it, but like he did the opening track of, on the album, Clarence White, he, uh, the music, uh, the instrumental section between the second and third verses, he said instantly, double it you know it, it draws you in just play it again uh and, and insert it and we just said yeah yes mm. that sounds great and years after we, we wouldn't have it any other way you know yeah you know, he strings as well he, he was very good with the string arrangements he, he was, yeah. and actually he did the string arrangements on the spain album blue moods of spain and that was yeah. his role so you know musically very sharp you know uh, mm. even though he doesn't play the violin but he's uh, plays the piano and uh, I suppose we listened to him musically. He's yeah, and on. you know he probably suggested fairly minor changes in the overall scheme of things, but they tended to make a huge difference yeah. to the to the songs. Yeah, and and it really made us pay a lot more attention to how we pieced our songs together as well thereafter. You know, mm -hmm. and just rather than 
first chorus, first chorus, middle eight chorus or whatever. You yeah, know, he we, didn't have to do that on the second album. Yeah, so yeah. Much, uh, we yeah. sort of learned what he, <laughs> what he was what he was telling us. You know, we learned from from what he was saying. So we, when Daniel came back that time, we had a look at Sun Studios in Dublin. They oh, had yeah. a tape machine Daniel was happy with. So we moved food paid for us to spend a couple of weeks in there just recording all of the first album. So that that whole album was fully recorded, overdubs done, mixed in the can completely. Mark Carolyn mixed it actually. Yeah, Mark Carolyn. Yeah, that's true actually. I'd forgotten about that. So that that was that was lying ready for release. When the label um, collapsed. The, the label went bankrupt, yeah. yeah. Um and you know we we they refused to give us the masters so we had to go through a legal route to get the masters back. But then we had we, we eventually got Got the masters back into her own position. Remind me again, how did Francis MacDonald from um, Shoeshine, how did he get hold of it? Cormac, you, you're you the one who typically does this stuff. You just started <laughs> flogging it left, right and centre around the place to to uh, mainly indies in the, in the UK, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, in those days, like the, you'd you'd pick up a record and the, the, the actual postal address of the record label would be on the record, you know, so you'd go through your record collection <laughs> and just... Stick a CD in the post, uh, CDR, and so uh, the well, the legend has it that they were recording the T- Teenage Fan Club were recording uh, whatever album at the time when the mm. early two thousands. They stuck it on in the studio, which is a good place to hear it on big speakers, you know. And so they were suitably impressed. And Norman Blake told him to sign us <laughs> to the label. <laughs> I think something like that. Yeah, it was it was probably a pretty good fit because his 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 um, label Shoeshine had a lot of kind of folk oriented music, uh, country oriented, fairly diverse uh, range of range of artists really. But you know, it seemed it seemed to be a pretty good fit for us overall. Yeah, I remember um, he had a uh, Michael Shelley and he had Ben Vaughan and Laura Cantrell and the Beauty Shop, wasn't it? The Beauty Shop, and great. Major Ma- Brilliant label, really. and and didn't he have a more? He had a kind of a little sub label called Spit and Polish, which was the more rootsier yeah. end of it, I think, if I remember. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, great guy though. You know, uh, just one of these guys that lived for music, playing it, but then investing back into other acts as well. He ran, if you pardon the pun, he ran the label on a shoestring, I guess, the Shoeshine Records, and uh, but he ran it very successfully for a while, and, and certainly. In terms of, you know, we probably weren't even aware of it at the time. Put, put a lot of money into our album in terms of PR, uh, funding a global release and global distribution, kind of thing that nowadays would seem, you know, it, it's it's just very very hard to get. But put his money where his mouth is and and got it released, released globally. Got got really good wide PR for it, uh, particularly in the UK, but further further abroad as well. You know. Yeah. If we can just go back there one second, because I was listening back again today to the record and uh, I wrote down Louise on cello, Dermot McDermott from, I think, the Jimmy Cake, wasn't it? When that clarinet comes in. Uh, what's that track? Imagine Olin, yeah. December, yeah. yeah. Someone plays violin. Is it? Is it Tamara? Tamara, yes. Yeah, yeah Tamara Galassi, isn't it? We just brought her in for that record, yeah. 
you could not have asked for better reviews, in fairness. You know, at the time, wasn't it? It was those monthlies, wasn't it? It was on Cotton Mojo, really, wasn't it? That would have been the big thing, getting a review in those monthlies. Yeah, that was back at the time when people actually bought those magazines, I guess. Some of those reviews were great. My own favourite from them, and I don't know, do you remember this one? There was a, It was a fantastic magazine. It was called Comes With A Smile. It was this gorgeous little magazine. Here's a sentence or two from their review. Rarely is a record so aptly titled as this debut from Cork's Morte. Music designed for twilight bedroom consumption. That is almost so tender that you fear direct sunlight would irreplaceably scorch its gentle beauty. That's lovely writing from this guy, Ian Fletcher. Far from lo-fi, as you've said, Cormac, absolutely. Far from lo-fi, this is an immaculately produced thing with brushed, strummed and hushed, understated instrumentation, fine-tuned to a pitch that often barely whispers its way from the speakers. I like that because that guy in Fletcher, he seemed to really get it, didn't he? There was no mention of so many of the other tropes that got repeated in a lot of the other reviews, you know. He finishes it, he says, keep those curtains drawn, empty diaries open and lights dimmed, boys. The dark ambience contained here suits you near perfect. That's just a flavour from some of the reviews from those monthly magazines. I can definitely remember, lads, that when Francis asked myself and Jim Morris to do a bit of PR here, it was easy to get reviews in Ireland because Mojo and Uncut had, if you will, given it a seal of approval. It was very easy to get people in Dublin to listen to it. Yeah, and it's a pity it works like that, I guess, but that's that's just the nature of the beast, yeah. Yeah, because I seem to remember that we had gotten reviews in all of the, the English dailies and, you know, the, the English monthly magazines, as you mentioned, before we got reviews in Ireland and the yeah. reviews in Ireland then came, came after that, I guess. Francis must have paid for PR in England, first of all, in the UK, and then all those reviews then would have been sent to Jim Morris and Jim then, I seem to remember he put together some little pamphlet, if I remember correctly, but definitely all the likes of the Irish Times and Hot Press, like it was very easy mm. once they saw Uncut and Mojo. What are your memories of that? Was there a buzz within the quartet when those reviews were coming in? Like, Because you'd have been reading those magazines, lads. I know you would. Definitely. Like I remember a lot of them coming in as we were on the, as we were on tour in the UK, and that, that was a great buzz. You know, hopping into the minibus in the morning, and uh, next thing you see, there's a, a review in you know Mojo or Q magazine or whatever. Yeah. You know, so there definitely is a buzz to that. Yeah, for sure. And it definitely brought people to the gigs as well, in uh, to the tour. You know, and uh, yeah, it was it was great. I mean, I suppose, I suppose we thought we'd really arrived at that point. You know that we could, you know actually turn pro and <laughs> really go for it you know? yeah so, there is that sweet there is that sweet spot of maybe yeah. um of, of a couple of months where everything is just flowing and uh, yeah, you know it's, it's way on the up you know? yeah, yeah exactly yeah that's it myself and derek murphy were at the london gig oh, oh really and there was something else on that weekend i can't remember what the big gig was there was another gig around that night. There was, yeah. I just can't remember what that was. We were like, oh, Jesus, look, Bo Morte are playing the night before or the night after or, or whatever. You're right, Paul. There's one, two, three, four, five, six. There's nine gigs. But what's striking is it's nine gigs in a row. How in the name of God did you do nine gigs in a row? 
remember we actually we actually drove from Glasgow to London for that London gig. We we drive we drove Glasgow was like yeah. eight or nine hours, and something sure. just struck me actually as we're talking about the the London gig the night before. Um, funny story. Well, wherever we played in Glasgow, there was a good crowd in there, and it was a good night anyway. And I was outside, uh, was outside after the gig having a cigarette or something. And this guy comes up, he goes, and he had the CD, and he says, "This better be effing good, you know." And uh, Transpires was the lead singer of Delamitri. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, you know, somebody told, told me afterwards, you know, but what he he just walked away. You know? <laughs> Yeah, I can remember uh, coming from Glasgow to London that day and because uh, it was a huge traffic jam around Birmingham, whatever that ring road is called. And uh, we just made it like with no time to spare before before the, the gig in London. Yeah, so great fun, you know, and it's um, it, it certainly gives a taste of what it would be like to be in a full time band. And jeez, must admit it, it was great. <laughs> um, and, you know, so. But it was probably enough. <laughs> I know most most bands would get in, you know, have another two hundred gigs. <laughs> I think one of you said in an old interview that the Brighton gig, that the first gig of that tour, was probably your worst gig ever. That it literally fell apart for you on stage. It was awful. I remember one yeah. stage we we started with Burn, I think, yeah. uh, and Cormac was playing it and. He played, we started one, two, three, four, here we go. I remember Corbett turning around to me and whispering, what's the first chord in? <laughs> so nervous. <laughs> because, you know, we're, it was our first gig in front of the label and we were on tour with a couple of our label mates who had flown in from the States and they had us headlining on, on, yeah. on the first one. And the place was packed and it was a lovely venue. And We'd had uh, all the reviews as well. <laughs> and you travelled all the way from Cork. You know, that's a long, you know, because it was it was Brighton. So, yeah, you had to get to Brighton from London, I suppose. Yeah, that, that's the reason we were so nervous. Yeah. I suppose we did, <laughs> you know, it was very much a learning curve. Like we did become more proficient as the, the tour went on. I remember we played a gig in Leicester and... It's still one of my favorite gigs that we've ever played. Yeah. I can just, well, just me personally, I know I don't think I've played them. <laughs> I made a mistake, which is unusual. <laughs> uh, but I didn't make one mistake that night. And uh, we, you know, as I say, like you mentioned it earlier, Paul, we're, we're part timers, we're, you know, it's a, it's a labor of love rather than the, you know, a labor. So when you're only playing a handful of gigs a year, it's, um, it definitely does make it harder, you know, and, I suppose we've got better over the years. Um, yeah. yeah, it was a, it was an experience, all right. Yeah, yeah that first night was. But yeah, we recovered well, and the rest, the rest of the tour was great. You know, it was just uh... the London gig was great. I I remember that London gig; it was brilliant. Yeah, yeah it, was it was just off of um, just off Oxford Street, wasn't it? Uh, down in some club, it was brilliant. Yeah. It says here it was called the Metro Club. I remember it, kind of Tottenham Court Road, the the junction of Tottenham Court Road and Oxford Street. Um, exactly. Yeah. It was brilliant, brilliant night. I was trying to remember, did Louise play cello on the tour? Was she? Uh, yeah. yeah, she was, wasn't she? Yeah, I had a recollection of there being cello on stage, all right. From a sound point of view, it must have been hard, like cello isn't the easiest thing to kind of get right on stage, or it's not particularly in a venue where a guy mightn't be used to um, a cello, you know? Yeah, it's difficult, and it's, you know, you need it needs to be sort of isolated, you know, from the other side. Yeah. So otherwise, it's being picked up, but uh, but it added a huge amount to the sound. Yeah, yeah. Louise was like a fifth band member for a long, long time. You know, I, I don't think we played yeah. a gig without her until 
probably the last 10 years <laughs> at some stage yeah but um yeah so it's uh yeah she she was like the, the fifth unofficial member i guess and then a few months after that i have the flyer from the gig in uh in the ambassador in dublin right. it was into january we're talking january 2003 it was a teenage fan club tour yeah and they had a they kind of had a best of out at the time that they were promoting it was called four thousand. 766 seconds it was this compilation album the dublin gig was the ambassador i remember that that's the one i was at but there was more than one gig the opera or sorry there was the savoy. savoy in cork and we played dolan's in limerick okay as well so we got to spend a bit of time yeah they're really nice really down to work guys like so yeah of the three of those venues dolan's would have been the most intimate wouldn't it i i'm just thinking seeing teenage fan club and dolan's would have been brilliant yeah it was yeah, it was a mob. yeah it was a great gig it was a great gig and like we had been teenage fan club fans from you know the late 80s from a catholic education yeah yeah right the way through and um more than just fans you know almost fanatical about them and that's why you know getting signed by Francis and his label was a big deal for us but then actually going on tour with them going on the piss with them was just uh was was just great you know it was um you know they say you should never meet your heroes but that wasn't the case with 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 the guys in the fan club they were just lovely people to hang out with but uh yeah. So yeah, th- those those three dates were great. I just remember seeing Roddy Doyle in the in the crowd at the gig. You know, just making an impression on me that you know he was there to see Teenage Fan Club. But, uh, Is that from the stage, Cormac, just, that you, you spotted know, him? All the way in, actually. Yeah. Way in. that was a great night. It's it's twenty years ago. It's more. What are your thoughts on the record? Obviously, every band thinks their latest record. I get that. You know, your latest record. You know, in your case, your latest record is probably the best of your four records. Actually, although time's going to have to tell that. It's hard to say that so close after the release, if you know what I mean. But surely you have a soft spot for the first one. Is there a love hate relationship with it because you had to sit on it for a couple of years? From from my point of view, it's a great record. I think. To, to me, you know, going back to listen to it, it's it sounds quite naively played, and and you know, and there are things that I would have done differently. But at the same time, I can see why people like it and why people loved it at the time, you know. But you're right. I mean, I I think you know we've we've sort of grown musically, and we've gotten better uh, to be better musicians and so on, and so that's that's changed the the dynamic a bit. But um, I think there's a progression between all four albums and I, I liked it and it, I th- it's definitely the start, you know, it's definitely the starting point because it's got naivety, you know, there are certain um, in, you know, things that you would change, I think it's not, you know, um, and, but people like that about it, you know, yeah. um, and then I think we progressed through the different albums to, to change the sound and I think we probably have our own sound now, whereas we were probably working off our influences for the first album a bit. I think that's a really fair comment to make, Cormac, actually. And I and, and I think it's OK to admit that as well. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Bill, you were going to say something there. No, I, I agree, agree with what Cormac said. But I, I think listening back to the one thing that, you know, and I, I just listened back to it yesterday for the first time in I don't know how many years, but is, you know, the, the work that was put into the recording by Daniel in terms of just the, the sonic qualities of it, uh, it, it, re- it really stands up and it, it, it sounds great. Let's say technically, after all these years, like he was, uh, you know, he was very, very uh, meticulous in terms of how he recorded it. He wanted to just capture the sound of the guitars and the instruments at their purest and get those onto tape. So, for instance, he he 
went hunting around Dublin for these Neve preamps. He was obsessed with them. And he hired in these Neve preamps that he put in line with every instrument and then fed those, bypassed the desk and fed them straight to the straight to the tape machine. So he, he recorded more or less straight to tape and then any effects or whatever that, that had to be done, he did during the mixing stage. So it was, he took a kind of completely purist and fanatical approach in terms of recording it. Probably didn't mean anything to us at the time, but I think listening back, you can hear the, the fruits of that in terms of just how how warm the album sounds. So well, you know, while the songwriting might be naive, some of the playing might be naive, I, I think just sonically, it just sounds really, really rich, you know, yeah. which is, you know, which is testament to the work that Daniel did. Yeah, that's what we wanted as well. Yeah. I mean, that's what we were looking for. That's yeah, we yeah. achieved that. Not that it sounds like it. That's not what I'm saying. But are you familiar with Spiritualite's first record? It's called Laser Guided Melodies. Um, Laser Guided Melodies is one of those albums that when you listen to it on headphones, you feel as if you're almost in the studio. You feel as if the strings and the instrumentation are almost there with you. And I think maybe, is that what you mean by warmth, Bill? Like when I listen to Bormorte's first record, I feel very much as if I'm almost in the record in a weird way. It, it feels really close to me. I think you've nailed it. Yeah, it's an immediacy. Uh, and it's that's because the, the recording of it is so stripped down in terms of just the gear that was used. It was really good gear, but as little of it as possible, you know. I think it does put you in the middle of the room. And yeah, that spiritualized reference is, is really interesting because a couple of reviews at the time picked up on that, even though, you know, I, I was never a spiritualized fan. I, you know, I just did, did, didn't really listen to them. You know, I was familiar with the singles from that album. And I'm not sure if the other guys were, but it certainly wasn't a reference point for us in recording the album. But it got mentioned in, in a good few yeah, reviews. A yeah. reviews yeah. 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 We should mention Morris. He's not here, but... um. My God, Morris's drumming and the recording of the drumming is incredible on that record, isn't it? It is amazing, yeah. And I, it's, it's something Daniel spent a huge amount of time on. And yeah, I think Morris is a bit of a, a secret weapon in terms of all of our albums because, you know, he he's not a conventional drummer. You know, he uses elements of hip-hop drumming, jazz drumming, avant-garde. He's not all about playing on the quarter notes and on the beat, you know, it's um, it's about serving the music rather than just laying down a rhythm to that the music sits on top of. Yeah, he's, he's a very musical drummer and probably thinks and sometimes maybe overthinks uh, very, very deeply about, you know, what drums he's going to place with what songs. He listens very, very carefully to the songs that the guys bring in. He'd be very hard on himself musically as well. Because yeah. he, he's very self-critical. I'd imagine he comes over multiple iterations of patterns before he settles on the mm. uh, yeah. you know on the final one you know and it's interesting you say Paul because not many people pick up on it having said that a few reviews of the new album have picked up on like his drumming on the new album is just off the charts completely and uh, a, f a good few reviews have picked up on you know god what's going on with the drumming you know which is which is great it, just in terms of the musicianship at play he's probably you know the best musician in the band I guess uh and uh yeah so it's you know it's it's interesting that you say that yeah right? daniel was threatening to poach him for other musical projects you know he wanted to wanted to bring him with them <laughs> that's interesting uh, isn't it daniel recognized it you know and he really captured it well as well mm. did any of you ever want to just like pack it in pack in the job or in the band <laughs> <laughs> no no the band the band but god you can't pack in the job jesus christ <laughs> <laughs> What are you talking about, Bill? You dreamer. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I don't think so. No. Well, I, I'll speak for myself first. Like, look, we've never made any money uh, from it, but you know, some people play golf in their spare time. Some people, I don't know, do all kinds of different things. But some people go over to the UK to a couple of matches. You, you know, six or seven matches a year. I mean, mm-hmm. that must cost a fortune. That's exactly it, and uh, I think at the core of it, yeah, like we're there's there's a there's kind of a core of friendship there amongst the four of us that sustains the whole thing. Like it's it's no effort to uh, to meet up as we do at the minute on a weekly basis and just churn through stuff. Yeah, I don't. It's never been discussed. You know, you mentioned it now, and it's, that's the first time that uh, yeah. the, the thought the thought would have occurred to. I, I me. suppose the one thing though is we we tend to need a deadline to to work towards. Uh, can you know come into the practice room and you know jam for an hour if unless we've you know a gig to to aim for or a you know recording or. You know, so I suppose we're not the most efficient. Yeah. But that's okay too, you know. We don't have to, you know, at the end of the day, it's something that's supposed to be enjoyable. Uh, the day you stop enjoying this Absolutely, is the day you yeah. stop doing it. But just one other thing, Paul, just to go back, you asked about um, the how the first album compares to the, the other albums and the lads kind of covered it quite well. But the one thing I would add to that is, like, uh, you know, Bill hit on it, Cormac mentioned there's a naivety in terms of the playing maybe the songwriting i wouldn't change that per se but i would in terms of arranging arrangements i would you know where i am now i suppose or where we've we've come in terms of a band you know we put the arrangements would have been a lot yeah. would have been a greater complexity to them uh like think of like somebody like richard dawson and you know there's no convention in what he does and i suppose we've moved away from conventions in terms of yeah. standard structures structures yeah. around songs and songwriting and that for me is um it's liberating in some ways to be able to to do mm. different things and you know maybe and some of the things we've done in the more recent material we've recorded we've put in we've had songs with three four five sections for say you know and um rather than having verse know, chorus a, verse a set structure yeah i think back back then as well we were purely into acoustic instruments and, and clean instruments and we we wouldn't have a synthesizer in the studio at that point you know yeah. uh we even brought in a glockenspiel for for the second album you know big concert uh, glockenspiel uh, instrument that we had to lift up the stairs but you know and we had a harmonium you know whereas now you can make all, a lot of those sounds on synths and you can and use the technology but we were kind of purists in a way into term in terms of what we would record and have on a record so that influenced this the first couple of albums yeah. and then we drifted away from that yeah since you know no i was trying to decide which song to feature from soon it will come time to face the world outside i was thinking i'd play either paul's song clarence white or cormac's song burn both of which were released on a double A side seven inch single by Shoeshine Records in advance of the album's release way back in 2002. But in the end, Bill emailed me and wrote that they had a slight leaning towards the song Maginot Line. So that made my choice easy. We'll continue our chat in a few minutes. We'll talk about the new album, plans for album number five, and we'll also tell a few more stories. But first, here's Maginot Line by Morte. In superstition, we gain confusion, the cogs and the wheels fool the chain, 
the total space ye hooked up with a guy i hadn't heard of him actually to be honest justin grounds i think is that his name a musician who's based down and i i think he's an american chap is he and he's based down in west cork is that right he's english isn't he? yeah he's from cambridge actually yeah we'll take that again is he uh <laughs> is he an english guy maybe and he's based down in west cork yeah that's right that's spot on <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah and he's the guy that we um we stumbled upon really because uh, uh maria Tukanen, who played strings live with us numerous times and uh, played on our third album. Uh, I think we were looking for her to do a gig sometime in the last few years. She wasn't available, but she knew Justin, sent Justin our way to play with us. Um, I can't even remember what, what gig it was, but it turns out he's a great guy, great violin player, um, but a great multi-instrumentalist. He's got his own little studio down in, down in Clannacilty. He does a lot of work with the HSE doing kind of music therapy uh, in, oh. in West Cork. You know? So he's found a little niche for himself in music. But then in the spare time, he spends a lot of time just recording kind of, you know, he's classically trained, records his own classical compositions or contemporary cl- classical compositions, but also is into the exact same influences that we are. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we've we've collaborated with him, I guess, more and more over the last three or four years. And yeah, he's. He's he worked with us a fair bit on the on the last album, and actually he's another contact would be Adrian Crowley. He's worked a lot with Adrian. He's done a lot of strings with Adrian. Oh yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. And I remember he was in a band that had probably the best reviewed Irish idiot, idiot, idiot songs. songs. Idiot yeah, songs. do you remember idiot songs at all, Paul? From around 2013, 2014, that yeah. that kind of direction. Yeah, he's 50% of idiot songs as well. What's it like bringing an outsider like that into the fold with you? The four of you have been together for over 20 years, like you've known each other longer. Is it hard to bring someone into the fold and to kind of trust them? Or is, is that interesting because it's something different? Quite a long vetting process. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's fine. You know, it's, it's um, you know, at the end of the day, people are like-minded. If you're, you know, if you're a music fan, if you like playing music, yeah, and he's he's just a really easygoing guy, and yeah. just a, just a great personality, you know. And uh, he he's one of he's probably more of an extrovert than we are. Like we we played um, at the Sounds from a Safe Harbor Festival in 2019. The Desners and Bonnie Ver and Feist and all these were playing at it as well. So we ended up at the after party with them, and we were we were in the after party kind of going. We'll go over and talk to Bryce. Come on, somebody, we've got to go over and talk to Bryce or to to Leslie, and. Uh, we weren't stirring, but Justin was all over them, you know, <laughs> and uh, he just got no qualms about that kind of stuff, you know. So he came back with loads of great stories from the Desners and Feist. And uh, he's, a, he's a good addition, you know, he kind of, I wouldn't say he's officially a fifth member yet or anything, you know, but we are, we, we're definitely going to gonna collaborate with him again in the future. I know you had plans initially to go up to your man, John. Is it John Murphy, the guy who's working with Lancome, I think, isn't it? Is Spud? That's right, Paul. Yeah, yeah. We made contact with Spud just because of the, the Live Long Day, you know, the, the Lancome album, just to, yeah. some of the soundscapes on that. You know, I don't think we have a lot in common with Lancome in terms of the kind of, you know, the scene that we're mining musically, but in terms of some of the soundscapes that they they got in that album were just astonishing, you know. Um, and it's something that just piqued our interest. So just reached out to, to John on spec and... Uh, yeah, we had um, arranged to record with him in Wicklow. I think it was yeah, it was 21, February of 21. But then a second lockdown came in place for a number of months. And by the time the second lockdown was over, I think he had been, Black Midi had discovered oh, yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, he went on and worked with worked in the last Black Midi album. 
and you know he's gone up a, a couple of leagues in the in the whole producer um arena ever since you know so because of that he kind of went away doing doing work with black midi and yeah then we that's why we went and said look what are we going to do with the fourth album and we reached back out to daniel and had a reunited with daniel for for the total space then it's um sonically such a departure again from the first record not really when you put it up against you know a progression of four albums if you were to kind of listen to the first album and the total space back to back yeah, it's the same band, but I mean, sonically, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, it's big. I mean, it's a big progression. But I mean, ultimately, it's still the four of us playing in a room together. And actually, yeah. the way that um, Daniel records is a lot of it was recorded live. So the, the, the core tracks were recorded, played live in the room, just the same way that we recorded the first album. And then it's just you add to it and, uh, and you know, you know, how you edit it and how you how you bring pieces together you know yeah i was listening to the new lancome album and you know noticing you know that they they all with like they interweave each track you know there's a lot of drones so that there are actually some similarities <laughs> 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 no we haven't sold as many copies but we're, we're, we're working on it we're working yeah and um, i think the big difference in recording this album as well is that we kind of have our own recording set up here now as well actually in this room that we're speaking to you from you know so if if we capture something that just sounds great when we're jamming, we can we we now save that. And we, we actually ended up using a lot of stuff that we had captured on an ad hoc basis uh in the new album, um, both here in our homes and various other recording studios, as well as the main recording studio up in Black Mountain where we worked with Daniel. Um so yeah, it was it was a very different process for us piecing all of piecing this new album together. I think Cormac, you sent me a link to it or something. I didn't start off intentionally wanting to download side A and side B as a whole, but that option was there. And I was so glad afterwards that I did, because, of course, it meant that I had to listen to it as a side A and a side B. Now, this is obviously months before the records came out, but it just meant that I wasn't listening to it in a track by track basis. I was listening to it as, as a whole and it totally like lent itself to that type of listening experience. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you said that because, you know, a few of the reviews have, have said the same thing. And, you know, that was sort of carefully thought through by us, you know, and pieced, we pieced the whole thing together in that way, you know, to work as an album. Now, the, the thing is, obviously, not everybody listens to albums these days, you know, but kind of forces you to listen to it in, in that in that way and there's a slightly different dynamic between side a and side side b and um you know that so i think it works from that point of view and um but and then it's it's surprising how few platforms allow you to play gapless this gapless transition from one track to another there's usually a, a little sort of millisecond of a cut whereas we don't want that <laughs> we want you to listen to the whole thing through you know so so, so I'm glad you said that. You know, it's, it's... And the little bridges, I don't know what she called them, you know, the little interludes or little bridges. It's its beautifully done. A lot of that is down to Bill because Bill, you know, learned how to use the technology, you know, where, where I was pretty new to it as well. But, um, but Bill, I think, could probably, we could probably record the next album here, you know. We've reached that level, you know. Yeah, 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 close enough to it, yeah. But having said that, it was great to be back with Daniel again in in a in a room for two weeks up in the up in um up in the side of a mountain in in Louth, you know. 
that place looks beautiful. I've seen pictures of it. It looks it looks stunning. It's a great setup. Yeah, it's a great setup. You know, I, I hope I hope it's a big success for them. I think I think it is because I, I think I heard they're expanding it soon enough, but it's residential as well. So it's just like a big timber log cabin or a couple of timber log cabins with a studio in one and then a residential area in the other. And it just lends itself to um, experimenting, really, you know, because in the in the residential area, actually, there's yeah. this big old church organ, big old wooden pump church organ. pump organ. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but they they've got a patch bay so you can hook it into the into the desk, which is in a separate building. Yeah. And so like we were, oh, we were we that on a lot of tracks. Yeah, we were in, having dinner one day in Cork because on the pump organ and <laughs> pumping out this melody and it sounded great. And so. Daniel ran into the recording studio and pressed record and it ended up in a couple of different places in the album, you know, so it's, it was a great, a uh, great experience working up there. Um, it's a great, great spot. Do you have a cache of songs or is it a case of we start again now? Do you know what I mean, Paul? Like is everything in the bag now? That's a total space. We're back to zero. We have to go again. Or would you like, would you be sitting on a cache of ideas and songs that, that you're going to start working on now again? Probably. Um, well, it's hard to say. Um, we've we've enough material for the next album potentially, but you know we haven't we haven't jammed this. We had hasn't evolved as the, as songs generally do. We we're going to add more to it. I suppose as Cormac mentioned earlier, we've probably more prolific in the last four to five years than we have been in the previous fifteen. And I suppose kind of COVID drove a lot of that. Um, you know, there's some songs that have been around a long time and and others are quite new and um, like i've just come back to the album before this one the opening track in that i'd say we that song arrived probably two months before we went into the studio now it's quite it's quite a simple arrangement but and then there are other songs that have been around around a while so um there's no cue as such so there's no method to how we yeah um it's all very i suppose yeah. organic really and yeah. Yes, we, we we record everything more or less, right? So we we've got like a Dropbox folder with dozens of songs in it that we when you know we're playing a bunch of live gigs in support of the new album over the next couple of months. But when the next couple of months are over, we're going to have to trawl through that Dropbox folder and uh, and sift out the bits that we can uh, refine and build into the next album, I guess. And do you enjoy that process, Bill, of the lads bringing in new ideas and hearing? hearing the lyrics for the first time and the idea. I mean, like, do you really enjoy that part of it then, adding your own little bits to it? Oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's all about. It's, and um, that process has probably got more collaborative over the last couple of albums than maybe the first couple where the lads more or less came in with the songs nearly finished, 80% finished. It's become more of, it's probably become, there's more input from everybody now than, than, than there probably was. As Paul mentioned, we've gone away from kind of traditional song structures into these maybe these uh, pieces of music with broken into various movements and stuff like that, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, there's still traditional song in there, um, but it's, it's not universally just uh, an album with, with uh, 12, 12, you know, standard songs on it. It was going that way, Cormac, because like you brought in a bunch of CDs that time when the Dial Waltz was released and you were kind of picking out half a dozen songs to play on the radio show. And if I remember, you had things like contemporary classical, as they call it, or <laughs> Johan Johansson, or um, even had um, Joanna Newsom and, you know, things like that, that were definitely veering away from typical song structures. Yeah, I think I think a lot of those influences, you know, we sh we sort of share them, you know, I mean, we, we all listen to different types of music, but I think 
the type of music we've listened we listened to uh, over the last 10 years has definitely expanded you know some of those influences have ended up on the last two albums definitely you said once the gigs and that are out of the way so i i, I presume you're kind of talking late summer maybe reconvening maybe back up there where you are trawling through that um that hard drive build that that dropbox of all those ideas to maybe begin thinking about a album number five yeah that's the plan <laughs> that's the plan and we, we, it probably won't be a very quick process either you know we we probably take a... but bill but that's i mean going back to how i started this why should it be yeah, totally i'm totally with that of like what's the rush yeah 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 enjoy the process that's it yeah you know we'll typically meet up on a week we'll have a few beers we'll talk about fantasy football we'll, <laughs> we'll go through uh, a whole bunch of stuff before we uh, before we move on to actually playing some music, you know. And when we put our minds to it, you know, if we, as Paul mentioned, if we've got a deadline, we'll we knuckle down and we can get very efficient. But outside of that, we're not very efficient. But I, th I think it allows the it allows the music to kind of develop maybe a bit more organically than than maybe it would otherwise. You know, there's making slow music slowly. I think somebody said, and that's that's kind of what we do. That's nice, actually, isn't it? That's nice. Who said that, the bastard? I can't remember who said that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know you hear these phrases and you go ah shit why didn't i think of that? <laughs> that's a good one <laughs> come here i wanted to ask you was it a case of putting clarence white on side on on one side and burn on the other so there'd be no fighting was that it was it a case of put <laughs> it's a double a no one can say well my song's the only a b-side yeah we actually know saying that i think that's <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we had a B-side ready yeah. at the time, so it was a case of putting two songs in the uh, album. Every, every song on that, on that album is an A-side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was purely a record company decision, but it, it probably does bring up one topic in that, you know, that 45, that yeah. single you showed up. That was the only incarnation of that first album that was on vinyl. Those two songs got onto a seven-inch. Yeah. But it probably is a bit of unfinished work we have to do is maybe look at getting the first album out in vinyl at some stage, because I think it would suit it because you know, it was recorded fully in analogue. Uh, I, th I think, Cormac, you, I think you were hunting down the tapes. Do we have the tapes, the two inch tapes? Well, uh... Yeah, I mean, I have them. I have them. I don't know what condition they're in. <laughs> it's expensive, though. I mean, you know, there's a small number of people out there, Bill, as you know, who who would who would love to have that on vinyl but you got to weigh up the expense and the time and would your time be better spent working on the fifth album for god's sake as well yeah. yes would i love to see the first two records on vinyl of course i would but like i think i'd prefer to see a fifth album <laughs> I, I agree well yeah i mean if it's easy to do we, we should do it but yeah, yeah. It's a vanity project but I, I, you know yeah probably yeah but then someone but then bill bill some would say Bo Morte is just a vanity project. <laughs> I can assure you it is. Uh, fun. Yeah, nobody's, nobody's more interested than ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably true enough. But uh, at, at this stage, I think you know, in terms of that vinyl, you know, we've that releasing an album on vinyl. You know, I think we've got that process down fairly pat, and I think we could do it with minimal fuss. You know. Without getting in the way, because it's so quiet, it would have to be a gorgeous pressing, wouldn't it? Like you know, to get yeah, mastering for vinyl is just a complete work mm. art in its own right. You know, it's, uh, and you you can't scrimp on the mastering process in particular, and and if you do, you're you're just it, it's a disaster. You know, it's not like mastering for CD or mastering for well, it's a completely different process. 
Um, so yeah, you, you just have to get the right person on it, I guess. Yeah, uh, definitely. Here's one thing which I laughed at. This is good. I didn't see this at the time, okay? But um, you probably know this. Hot Press ran uh, a poll at the end of 2009. I think it was their end of decade thing, right? Mm -hmm. And they did the top 250 Irish albums of all time, okay? At 203, you had Van Morrison's It's Too Late to Stop Now. Now, that's one of the, that's one of the greatest live albums of all time. And at 204... Bore Morte. Soon it will come time to face the world outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That means there's 203 better Irish albums. <laughs> but it also means it also means it's better than 36 Irish albums. So yeah. fair play to Hot Press there now. There you go. There you go. I don't know. It said it was a poll put together by writers and musicians. So I I don't know. I'd say it was Adrian Crowley was asked. What do you reckon? Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe, <laughs> probably, yeah. yeah. Good, good friend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, that was that was one of the great things about the first album is that you know we we played probably live more than we ever have before or since, and we just met. You know, we we played lots of gigs in Dublin, um, got to meet loads of great people that we otherwise wouldn't have met. You know, we yeah. the guys in the Jubilee All Stars we played them a number of with them a number of times, mumbling Death Row, Ronan Hessian. Yeah. played with him a good few times um, yeah he's a great guy he's, he's he remains just on that he remains my favorite irish artist of all time he's so talented herring and the brine i think that got nominated for the choice you're my friend choice award senior my friend yeah the first one yeah come here i just want to say thanks a million for giving me the time i love this record i'm a little biased in that i remember it i remember the gigs and i remember jim marsh and myself trying to trying to get people to write about it and stuff so I feel in a weird way kind of a little bit biased about it. But I think that's OK, too. Probably that's probably um, that makes it more special in a way, actually, to tell you the truth, you know. But I really want to say, guys, congratulations on the um, on the total space. And I do um, I do mean what I said there that I think it's the best of the four records. And um, but I also feel weird saying that because I haven't lived with it for as long as um the other records but i think you know what i mean don't you that uh it definitely feels to me like um a real departure uh sonically yeah that's yeah, great to hear paul yeah. Yeah. thanks for thanks for plugging it as well paul yeah listen we'll talk soon Sloan. bright as the sun your face has already shone
Already Run, taken from The Total Space by Bohr Morte. And my thanks again to Paul, Cormac and Bill. Bohr Morte play Upstairs in Whelan's on Thursday the 11th of May. If you go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find the episode notes and loads of information about Bohr Morte. You'll also find further information about the podcast. And if you enjoyed this one, then I'd ask that you please subscribe, like and share. The theme music to the podcast, it's called Irish Rhapsody Redux. It's by Mark Healy. It's his reworking of a recording of the New Light Symphony Orchestra's version of Victor Herbert's Irish Rhapsody. Until the next episode, goodbye.